Thank you, Sheridan. Beautifully read. A bit piecemeal, I'm afraid, but um, there's too much to read the whole lot. In fact, we have a lot to get through tonight. The whole two chapters of Genesis, chapter 1. <clears throat> and my computer's gone and shut down, would you believe? <laughs> uh, bear with me. Um, <clears throat> Being a male, I can only do one thing at a time. And, uh, and we're just about there. Okay, we are there. Yeah, so our topic tonight is the God who is there. And it's part one of a series of uh, 14, uh, which is about the whole picture of the Bible, the whole Bible. So um, obviously we should start at the beginning. And that's where we're starting tonight, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So I'm just doing the first part. Uh, Pastor Darrell will be here next week to do the second part, which is in Genesis chapter 3, and then progressing through the Bible to the end things at the end of the Bible in the Revelation. And so just to uh, start out with a bit of a, an overview of the Bible, but let's, before we do that, have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would bless the words that are spoken and the ears that hear them, that Jesus might be magnified tonight, that you would be honoured because we've been here together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so uh, we look at uh, the beginning, look at, to start off with, a picture of the whole Bible, which is uh, a bit hard to do, but um, we think about there being uh, 66 books in the Bible or 66 parts. In fact, the Bible means book. It's a collection of books, but the Bible means book. We have the Old Testament uh, with uh, 39 books. We have the New Testament with 27. And uh, it was written over about at least 1,600 years. And we have uh, Hebrew and Greek being the major languages. There's a little bit of Aramaic. A place like Daniel, for example, there's a couple of pieces of Aramaic there, which is a language like Hebrew. Uh, since the Old Testament comprises most of the Bible, most of the Bible is written in Hebrew. So, uh, in a sense, the most useful language for understanding the Bible in the original languages is Hebrew. But uh, Greek is the language of the New Testament, which, which talks uh, most strongly about Jesus. And uh, it has over more than, more than 40 human writers. So if you think about it being like a library of books, like this, and we see up there in the, in the top left-hand corner, we have the books of history in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Um, and they don't all follow in a nice chronological sequence. So if you start at Genesis chapter 1, reading the Bible and read through, you won't get a sequence of events A, B, C, D, E, F like that because of things that overlap. Uh, for example, if you go across to the, to the prophets, all those blue books in the middle, the major and minor prophets, uh, their writings actually overlap with Kings and Chronicles uh, back there in, on the top shelf, the green books on the top shelf. And uh, so if you want a sort of chron chronological reading of the Bible, you have to sort of get one um, separate from the Bible, which actually tells you which passages to read to get the chronological order. But Genesis and Exodus are chronological. They are the events from the beginning up until the uh, exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And, uh, and then we get to the New Testament. We get the four Gospels there in the third shelf down, the yellow books, and they are uh, parallel treatments of the life of Jesus and then we have uh, Acts of the Apostles which is the formation of the church after that and then we have a series of letters 
uh, things written by, uh, largely written by the Apostle Paul, but some by others like Peter and James and so on, uh, which are, again, they're not in chronological order, but they relate to different events through there. Then we have Revelation, that purple book at the end, which is a wrapping up of everything at the end times, uh, some of which is to occur in the future. And so that's the big picture of the Bible. And the New Testament is written over about a period of about 50 years, uh, contrasting with the Old Testament. Now, was it, is it just a human document? Well, it claims to be the Word of God. In fact, thus says the Lord, occurs over 400 times in the Bible. And there are many actual claimed quotes from God. God himself speaking here, and there's a quote from what God says. And he, so he spoke to certain people. So that's a bit of a bird's eye view of the Bible. Now, if you're new to this, new to the Bible, don't be afraid to look up the little index in the beginning if you need to know where something is. I mean, I, even I do that sometimes with some of the, the small books. It's actually easier to look them up in the front and see where the page number is and you go straight to it rather than fiddling around saying, oh, it's in here somewhere between these books. I can't find it. You go past it and you try again. But, you know, don't be afraid to look up the index in the front, you know, if you can't find something. Um, because that's the way to find it quickly, especially some of the lesser-known parts of the Bible. So if you'd like more information about the uh, Bible, where did it come from, how do we get it, how, how can we know that it's the Word of God, there's actually a little book up there I have called How Do We Get Our Bible and How Do We Know It's the Word of God. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, I'll give you one for free. Okay? Do you have to come and ask for it? Um, if you are a Christian, you can pay for it. All of $2. You know, it's not much, is it? So uh, Leslie will be up there, back there afterwards. So how do we get our Bible? You can get that and it'll fill in a lot of those gaps. Because uh, people, when we're talking to people, us Christians, people often say, oh, you know, the Bible's just cobbled together and it's just people decided things. But it's not like that. When you actually understand how it came together, uh, we can trust it as God's word. So let's get to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Uh, chapter 1 is the creation week. Chapter 2 uh, details of the creation of the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. Now some skeptics will uh, say that this is uh, a, two different accounts of creation. But they aren't. Chapter 2 is a, an account of the details of day 6 of creation week, which is talked about in Genesis chapter 1, talking more details about the creation of the man and the woman and the situation of the garden in which they were put. And so it's like if you like the chapter 1 is the big picture, the overview of everything. Chapter 2 is focusing, narrowing down. And you read, read books like that, don't you? You read a book, it shows the big picture, then it focuses in on certain things. That's exactly what's happening here. It's not a, a different account of creation. And so if you... Now, when I looked, at, looked this up, our website... Now, by the way, I work for uh, Creation Ministries International. And those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Don Batten's my name. Sorry, I should have said that at the beginning. I sort of assume everybody knows who I am since I've been here for about 18 years and you tend to be, feel like you're part of the furniture at times. But, um, but yeah, and I work for Creation Ministries International. We have a website, creation.com, dealing with origins, Genesis and origins and how it relates to the gospel and everything. And there's a... a help on there called Genesis verse by verse and when Pastor Darrell discovered this when it first went up he came and said uh, you know you, you lot are dangerous uh, because I got onto that thing and I couldn't get out of it I spent I don't know how long he said he spent on it 
but he, he, uh, he just got so buried in it. There was so much information, so much helpful stuff. Uh, and he just got, and it's like that. In fact, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there are over 130 articles linked to different verses in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And so you can take a while going through all that. So we don't have time to do all that tonight, obviously, but it's there if you'd like to study things in greater depth. So let's start at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, one of the fundamental questions that everybody asks at some stage in their life is, where did everything come from? Where did everything come from? Even a child asks this. Where did everything come from? I mean, when they see a magic show and see you know, a rabbit just appears, they know it didn't just appear. It came from somewhere. Somebody was hiding it up their sleeve or something or other. There's some, there's some trickery going on here. And what about the universe? Where did it come from? Did it just appear like a rabbit out of a hat? Magic? Where did it come from? Well, there are two options. God created it or it made itself. Or if you like, evolution, cosmic evolution. Everything made itself. And somebody says, well, it couldn't have always been there. I mean, we don't have to say it had a beginning, do we? I mean, it could have always been there. Well, it doesn't work. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But, uh, you know, this idea of evolution, some people have the idea, oh, it's just how the scientists say God made things. No, it's not that. It's actually how it all came to be without God. That's the whole point of it. So evolution is not how God made things. It's how everything was made without God. That's the whole point of it. And so... As a young Christian at university and high school, uh, I used to say things like, well, you know, Genesis is about who and uh, you know, science is about how and, you know, the things sort of somewhere or other gel together. But in fact, evolution fundamentally is how everything came to be without God. God's got nothing to do with it. In fact, if you read the books by the so-called new atheists by Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and, uh, and so on, you know, all of them, a gung-ho about evolution. Because as atheists, people who say they don't believe in God, what is their alternative to believe in a creator? Evolution. Evolution is the atheist creation myth. And um, Albert Moller, who is head of the second largest uh, Bible college seminary in the world, in Kentucky, in the United States, Southern Baptist uh, Seminary, he said this, he said, evolution is a great intellectual rival to Christianity in the Western world. It is the creation myth of the secular elites and their intellectual weapon of choice in public debate. In other words, these secular elites, the godless, they use evolution to try and get rid of God. And they use it in public debate. And uh, uh, they try to browbeat people into accepting evolution. Why? Because they think it gets rid of God. Well, there was a beginning. If you look at this car here, uh, once it was a gleaming new car, it was somebody's pride and joy. You recognise immediately when you see a rusty hulk like that, that it was once new, wasn't it? It wasn't always a rusty hulk. There was a beginning for the car. But you know, the universe is like that. It's falling apart, rusting, if you like. And of course, like that car... It can't have been there for 500 years, can it? Can't have been there for a thousand years because it wouldn't be anything left. So it puts a time frame on it, doesn't it? It had to have a beginning in time. It wasn't there forever. And so we think about the universe. 
The universe is winding down. The stars are using up their energy, using up their matter to make energy. The energy is being dispersed through the universe everywhere. And eventually there will be heat death when there's no matter to turn into energy and it all just fizzles out. It hasn't already fizzled out, has it? Therefore, it's had a beginning. If it was eternal, been here forever, it would have already fizzled out. And so there's a beginning. In fact, hardly anybody today denies that there was a beginning. In fact, the Big Bang idea is the idea that there is a beginning. But they try to have a beginning without any cause. There had to be a beginning. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 says, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you are the same. Your years have no end. So the universe is wearing out. It hasn't already worn out. It had a beginning. So what about the idea it made itself, this cosmic evolution idea? According to the most popular idea, the Big Bang idea, uh, there was nothing and it exploded and produced hydrogen and helium. Yeah, that's what they t teach. This hydrogen and helium formed stars that exploded and created all the heavier elements and ultimately galaxies like ours, our sun and the earth and other planets. And then the earth eventually produced living things, a microbe. And this changed into every living thing on earth, including you and me, all by natural processes. And here it is uh, in uh, Discover magazine summarising the views of one of the top cosmologists, top experts in the Big Bang. The universe burst into something from absolutely nothing, zero nada. As it got bigger it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. Now, folks, this isn't very, isn't very logical. In fact, um, the principle of cause and effect is something that even a young child understands. Talk about the rabbit appearing a while ago. There's not sufficient explanation just to say it just appeared. Everything that has a beginning has to have a sufficient cause or an instigator or something to cause it coming into being. Uh, look at the chair, for example, there. I mean, if I said to you that chair just made itself, nobody made it, it just appeared, what do you say? Man, you need a psychiatrist. But they're saying the whole universe just appeared. Man, they need a psychiatrist. Well, these are very clever people. Very intelligent, very clever people, professors at universities. No, the most profound statement in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They didn't just appear that they had a sufficient cause. That means that the creator of the universe must be incredibly powerful. Just imagine those stars and the energy and everything in the universe. God brought that into being. So Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 refutes atheism. God created the heavens and the earth. It didn't make itself. It refutes atheism. The universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism, that God and the universe are one, or everything is God and God is everything. Now that's a new age idea today. Right? The, the, the universe is, everything's God. You know, you're God and I'm God, everybody's God, you know, we're all little gods, you know. That sort of idea. No. That's not what is being said here. This refutes that, poly, that uh, pantheism idea. Uh, it refutes polytheism. There are many gods because there is one God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, the word create there in the Hebrew is a singular verb. In other words, like I say in English, we say uh, I am, he is, they are. Okay, there's a different verb depending on whether it's singular or plural. It's the same like that in, in Hebrew for all the verbs. So the word, the one for create, has different forms depending on whether it's a singular or plural or, or whatever. It's a singular. 
And so there's one God. And that's the same throughout the Bible. It talks about one God. It refutes a materialism. Matter is all there is because God is not matter. God is spirit, as it says. Uh, it refutes uh, humanism, which puts man at the centre of things. But the Bible puts God at the centre of things. And it refutes evolutionism, which says that uh, everything made itself. No, God created things. They didn't make themselves. So this is a profound statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the Bible does not try to prove that God exists. I've done a little bit of that here. But the Bible doesn't try to prove God exists. It's considered self-evident that God exists. Self-evident. In fact, in Romans chapter 1 it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So in other words, because of what has been made, it has to have a maker, it speaks about there being a creator, no one has any excuse. So those who at judgment one day say to God, look, I believed in evolution, I didn't believe it, I didn't think you it, but he says, sorry, not sufficient excuse. Not sufficient. And Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. You look at the incredible universe we live in. And some of the incredible images from the Hubble Space Telescope. And, uh, but you know, when you see those reports of these incredible things are being discussed, how often do you see God being given the glory? Never. God is not given the glory. They're just attributed to natural processes some way or other. In fact, the Bible says, uh, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. It's all about God. It's all about God. Now, if I showed you this uh, vase of flowers here, nobody would say that the vase, which is made of sand, isn't it? Sand making glass, you know. I mean, what if I said to you that I was out in the bush one day and there's the pile of sand. I looked at it and there's a vase sitting there in the pile of sand. I said, wow, look at what the lightning strike did to the pile of sand. No, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Nobody would deny that the vase was made by an intelligent designer, but we're told the flowers in the vase weren't the flowers in the vase just made themselves by evolution over billions of years so the problem though is that the flowers have too much design if the flowers could be attributed to a human designer it'd be okay but the flowers have too much design they speak of a super creator who's far above us they're stupendously complex super sophisticated you know when they look in when you look inside these flowers and inside all living things we find a world which is just mind-bogglingly complex. If right now inside you and me and in flowers and living things, um, it, there's a delivery system delivering packages inside our cells. And here's an animation showing this happening. It's an animation, so this is a, called kinesin or kinesin. It walks around a road network made of proteins called microtubules. And it delivers packages. Inside the package there are proteins. The proteins are actually like the components of the cell. They're manufactured with an address label on them saying where they're to go to in the cell. 
And so some way or other, nobody quite knows how yet, these packages are delivered to where they're meant to go. Folks, how did that just happen by some sort of chance chemistry? It just defies logic. Now people say, where's all, where's all the papers in mainstream journals proving there's a creator? Folks, every paper on molecular biology just screams there's a creator. Even by the atheists. But they can't see it. The Bible talks about being blind, spiritually blind. And we could talk about many other things. Today there is no excuse for not believing. You don't have to be a scientist to see it. You just have to open your eyes. There is a creator. That's why the Bible doesn't set out to prove there's a creator because it's self-evident there is. It's self-evident. So what about these atheists that call themselves free thinkers or even brights? There was a stage there a few years ago they tried to popularise the idea of calling themselves brights. We're the bright guys, you know, we don't believe in God. <laughs> well, think about it. An atheist actually believes in miracles without any miracle worker. An atheist believes that nothing times nobody produced everything and everybody. That's magic. At least I have a sufficient creator who can do these things. The atheist also believes that hydrogen turned into brains and minds. Over billions of years, of course. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. Because why? It's self-evident there is a creator. It cannot be denied. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find there uh, that it's controversial amongst some Christians. You can quickly get into a heated argument with some people about this. You say, look, I believe Genesis is meant to be taken as history. Oops, you can't do that. Well, why not? Now, there's been very little dispute over what Genesis means for 1,800 years. Very little deviation. So why is it a problem today? Well, because of the perceived facts of science. Geology, with its billions of years, and evolution, how everything... Uh, came about by purely natural processes with no need for God. And so people think they have to, somehow or other, marry the Bible with the sure facts of science regarding the time frame and, on, and so on and so on. And of course you get a continual diet of this stuff on the television and on the newspapers about the new fossil they found and they found some footprints in England just the other day that 800,000 years old, you know, and you, and you look at it and they tell you, tell you about how They've been there for 800,000 years and they're there in the tidal uh, area there in Norfolk, on the coast of Norfolk. And they say, well, we took all these lovely pictures and everything, but then they washed away. And they've been here for 800,000 years and they washed away. Just like that. Man, it wasn't even April the 1st. That's the sort of nonsense that carries on. And people, oh, it must be true. 800,000 years. And so... Uh, what changed England into a pagan nation? The same thing in Australia. What changed us into a pagan nation? You know, when I was a child, 80% of, of children went to Sunday school. That was the 1950s. 80% of children went to Sunday school. How many, how many kids went to go to Sunday school these days? 1%? What happened? What happened? 
F. Sherwood Taylor in 1949 in the BBC radio program said this, I myself have little doubt in England it was geology and the theory of evolution that changed us from a Christian to a pagan nation. In the 1960s, evolution started being taught in the schools in Australia right throughout as science. Before that, it hadn't been taught. In fact, before that, schools were Christian schools. Public schools were Christian schools. Public schools had prayers. They had a pastor come in and lead the school in prayers. Or the schools sang hymns at their assembly and so on. This is not Christian school until about public school. Your local public school was a Christian school. What happened? We had this secularization of society based on evolution. Everything made itself we don't need God. If you want some more stuff about evolution and why it doesn't work, there's a little brochure here which is for free up the back. I've got about 100 of them, so it's probably enough for everybody. Eight Reasons Why Evolution is Foolish, written by Dr. John Hartnett, who's a professor of physics, University of Adelaide. And there's eight reasons he sets out there. Great little brochure. And grab one and see how you might use it. So there's all these interpretations of Genesis to try and marry it with this supposed science and I'm sure you've heard of some of these ideas you know the days of creation in Genesis chapter 1 were actually long periods of time you heard that idea you, you make it make the day into an era of time and stretch all the days out and another one is the gap theory between the first couple of verses of Genesis you shove all the millions and billions of years into that gap there between there and then God recreated things and well you know there's a big story about how Lucifer's flood came and destroyed the earth and how God recreated things during six days of creation week but of course the Bible doesn't talk about Lucifer's flood, it's sort of an invention. Um, and, and then there's theistic evolution, you just, well, I just give up the boat and say, well, you know, don't worry about it, God used evolution, let's talk about something else. And framework hypothesis, this was invented in the 1920s. So when you find something invented in the 1920s, and we've had the Bible for how long? 2,000 years. You can be sure that it's not in the Bible. And the framework hypothesis is the idea that the Genesis is meant to be some sort of framework for theology, but you just ignore the framework and take the theology. Basically, that's what they say. And the framework, of course, is the six days and the creation week and all the history part of it. And so these people think that they can sort of just have any view of science you like and we can still have the Bible. In fact, when they do that, they actually make the Bible irrelevant to reality. They divorce the Bible from the real world and say... It really can say anything you like. And that's what you hear people say. Oh, people make the Bible say anything you like, you know. Is that what you hear people say? Where'd that come from? It come from this sort of stuff, you know. When you read Genesis chapter 1, it says, the evening, morning, day 1. There's evening, morning, second day, third day, fourth day. Evening, morning, sixth day, seventh day, rest of space, so seven day a week. Boy, there must be long periods of time. No. In fact, the days are defined. Uh, there in Genesis chapter... Oh, by the way, all those views all also end up having a local flood. So Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, it talks about the flood of Noah, which talks about all the high mountains under the whole heavens being covered with water and everything's destroyed. Uh, that was a local flood. Well, we don't have time to go into that, but that doesn't make sense either. In fact, they end up saying the whole first 11 chapters of Genesis are not real history. And I said to one guy over in England a couple of years ago, he wanted to say that. And I said, well, let's look at Luke's chapter. I said, boy, is Luke, Luke's gospel, is that history? Oh, yes, that's first-rate first history, Luke's gospel. So let's look up Luke chapter 3. And I started reading the genealogy of Jesus, which goes back to Adam. 
You know, so and so begat so and so begat so and so. All the way back to Adam. I said, so where does the history start and finish? Yeah, I don't want to talk about this anymore. See, you, you, you can't start fiddling with Genesis without having ramifications for the rest of Scripture because it's the foundation for everything, the foundation for the rest of Scripture. But the days are defined. Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, it says that there was evening and there was morning. Literally, it says one day, Yom Hechad in Hebrew, literally one day. Here's the definition of an evening-morning cycle is one day. It's the definition of a day. That's what it is, an evening-morning cycle. Isn't that what a day is? An evening-morning cycle, it is, isn't it? And there were six of them in Genesis chapter 1 with the seventh day of rest. So Hebrew professors uh, acknowledge this. This was in Creation magazine. Uh, Dr. Andrew Steinman, distinguished professor of theology in Hebrew at Concordia University in Chicago, and he said, Genesis teaches six normal-length days. Straightforward. There's no doubt about it. You see, think about a day. It's one earth rotation, isn't it? Think about a month. It's the lap of the moon around the earth. Now think about a year. It's the lap of the earth around the sun. Where does a week come from? There's no astronomical basis for a week. It comes from the fact that God created everything in a week. In Genesis, that's where it comes from. Uh, so there's an understanding of the Bible principle here which you can apply right through, not just about this, but everything else. When you read something in the Bible and you say, well, what does it mean? How, do I, how am I meant to understand that? Look at what the rest of the Bible says about it. So there's a principle here. You've got this passage here. Is there some other passage in the Bible that comments on this? Is there another passage in the Bible that comments on the days of creation in Genesis chapter 1? There is. In Exodus chapter 20, there's one spot, but there are many other places. In fact, in the New Testament, there are over 60 allusions to Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Jesus talked about marriage in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. In the, at the beginning, God made them male and female. Acts 10, chapter 10, verse 6. And many other places. Jesus talked about the flood. In Luke 17, the flood came and destroyed them all. See, he, he talked about these events in Genesis as real history. They weren't some sort of figment of, his, of imagination of people. And so we see there that uh, Genesis, which uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and so on. And so all scripture then meant the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't yet complete. And so primarily this was talking about the Old Testament. All, and Jesus said, Not one jot or tittle will pass away till it's all fulfilled. So he's saying the Old Testament is reliable, it's authoritative. And there in, in Exodus chapter 20, we find the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it says God inscribed these with his finger on stone. Well, God doesn't have a finger, but you know that makes it understandable for us. God inscribed on stone the words of these Ten Commandments. And you see there, it says there regarding the Fourth Commandment, which is the Sabbath Commandment, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So here's a commentary on the creation week of Genesis chapter 1, which says there's no long periods of time. These are six ordinary days. So there's only one view that does justice, and that is as a five or six-year-old would read it and understand it, there's six days of creation with a seventh day of rest. Now all the schemes have been invented to try and marry this, um, the Bible with the millions of years a lot of the people who think up these things don't actually think through much of the consequences. We've been talking about some of those. 
But I haven't talked about the most important one. And that's this. The millions of years aren't some sort of abstract concept. They're supposed to be the age of rocks under our feet. And in the rocks under our feet are fossils, dead things, which are a record of what? Death, suffering, disease, cancer, all sorts of stuff you find in the fossils under our feet. So if they've been there for hundreds of millions of years like it is claimed, where do we put that into the Bible? You see, all those schemes try to put it into the Bible. You know, the days, the long periods of time, the framework hypothesis, uh, the, the gap theory and so on. But you know, when God finished creating everything in verse 31, as we read a while ago, it says there everything was very good. Everything was very good. In fact, it's paradise, isn't it? I mean, Eden means delight. The Garden of Eden means delight. It's delightful. It's, it's paradise. In fact, you read there, we read there how the animals and the people were actually vegetarian. That's a bit mind-boggling today, isn't it? I mean, you mean I can go for a surf and not worry about getting eaten by a great white shark? Yep. <laughs> but it's not like that today, is it? We live in a different world. And that's what Genesis is setting the picture of something different. You look at, read Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and say, we don't live in that world anymore. What's happened? Something's happened. But it was paradise. But folks, all those schemes when I married the Bible with the millions of years, what they do is they put the Garden of Eden on a pile of bones, fossils, kilometres deep, and those fossils represent death, suffering and disease. When God said he made everything very good, it doesn't add up. In fact, it makes God the author of evil, author of suffering, author of all sorts of stuff. In fact, people today ask, how can there be so much death and suffering in the world if God is good? Isn't that one of the big questions? It's the biggest question. Folks, if, you, if you've taken on board this, this uh, theological idea that you can marry the Bible with millions of years, you've got no answer to that. But if we believe Genesis as, as we've been talking about, we have an answer. And that is God made everything very good and it became corrupted through sin. Genesis chapter 3 next week. We're laying the foundations for next week. You know, one of the things that helped me heaps in all this is to understand that when people talk about the past, what happened millions of years ago, they're not talking science, they're talking history. And when we talk science, this historical science it's called, or forensic science, you have evidence in the present, like a fossil, and you get a story about what happened in the past. Now the fossil is a fact, but the story is a story. And it always is. No matter how sophisticated sounding it might be. They might use radiometric dating to try and say this is so many millions of years old. It's still a story. A very, very fancy sounding story, but it's still a story. And those radiometric dating techniques contradict themselves. But we don't have time to go down that path. That contrasts with... See, you can't do experiments on the past, can you? Anybody got a time machine? Doctor Who or something, you know, Blackadder... Nobody's got a time machine, have they? You can't do experiments in the past. Nobody observed fish walking out in the land to become amphibians and, and then reptiles and birds and all the rest of it. Nobody observed that. It's a story. That contrasts with operational science where we study how the world operates. Now you can look at a car and study how a car works 
all you like. It's not going to tell you where it came from, is it? It'll tell you that it's intelligently designed, not if it's a Ford, of course. <laughs> Sorry about that. Fords are okay. They used to be when they were made in Australia anyway, but even Commodore's not going to be made in Australia anyway. But anyway, that's another story. But you can study how things operate. That doesn't tell you where they came from. But it can tell you that they have been intelligently designed. And that's what we find when we look at operational science. You can do experiments, you can test things. Fundamental difference here. Science studies the repeatable. If you think that water doesn't boil at 100 degrees Celsius, sea level, you can do an experiment and test it. Think it might have changed in 12 months' time, you can repeat the experiment. Think it might be different over in New York, and go over there and do the experiment over there. What happens if someone said, I think it was different 10 years ago? Can you do an experiment and test that? No. But we have eyewitnesses who did that experiment 10 years ago. That's different. But it's reliant on eyewitnesses. You can't do an experiment on what happened in the past. You get the picture? So as soon as somebody gets up and says, millions of years ago, Folks, they're not talking about science, like the science that put men on the moon or give us laptops and iPods and all that sort of stuff. They're talking about a different thing. They're talking about daydreaming about the past. And that daydreaming excludes the Bible as an historical text. Fundamental premise in all this stuff is the Bible's got nothing to do with reality. It's just made up by people. And so the fundamental thing there. If you want more information about the whole evolution thing, there's a little booklet called Stones and Bones. Again, if you're, not, if you're not yet a Christian, come and see me, I'll give you one for free. You know the story. If you are, you'll pay for it. But only $2. So it's not very much. I've got 10 up there, and uh, so be quick. But we learned some things about God. God simply is. Okay? He was there before everything else. God made everything that is not God. The creation proclaims his greatness and glory. And we've learned, we learned some other things. There is only one of him. We touched on that. The Hebrew, bara, create. Elohim created. Elohim is actually an interesting word in Genesis chapter 1 when it says God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is actually the word for God. But it's actually a plural Hebrew word. That's a bit strange. How can you have a plural word with singular verb? You know, there's one God, but it's plural. Well, in fact, the word also is used, that form is also used to indicate majesty or power or that sort of thing. Later on, we find when God created Adam and Eve, he said, let us make man in our image. Now, that's different. Now, there's a bit of a... Now, what's all that about? Well, we don't really fully understand it until the New Testament, but it's indicating there's some sort of plurality in the one God. Let us make man in our image. And so there's only one of him. Uh, God speaks or talks. He communicates. God speaks the natural order and things happen. Can you do that? Can I do that? No, only God can do that. Who else did that? Spoke to the natural order and things happened. Over in the New Testament, Jesus did it, didn't he? He spoke and the raging storm was stilled straight away. He spoke and a person was raised from the dead. 
What does that speak about Jesus? Jesus has sort of attributes of God, doesn't he? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but you get the picture. We're heading into, the, into the, what's in the future here. But you see the hints of it here in Genesis. And so we see there that God says everything's very good, and we've talked about that. There's no hint of death or decay or pride or destruction, arrogance, suffering. God is good. And the people and the animals and everything were in harmony. And God ceases his creative work and rests. Why? Because he's tired? No, as a pattern for our week. God doesn't get tired. We do. We need a rest. God doesn't need a rest. So he also, the lawgiver, we go over to chapter 2 now. Chapters 2, verses 16 and 17, where we talk about the tree. And you will not eat from this tree. So we lead it. We work on the things about humans. We talked about God, and there's things about humans here in Genesis chapter 1. God says, let us make man in our image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Why? For a relationship with God. What does it mean to say we're made in the image of God? Well, things like we have intelligence, we have language, we have logic, we have creativity. We're capable of love and fellowship. We're moral beings. We're created to rule over the creation, to care for it. We're God's vice regents, like he rules over the universe. He set us as ruling over his creation. That's the meaning of life. We're made to react, we're made to be in relationship with God. We're creatures, we're not God, we're not all powerful. We can't do what God does, but we are, if you like, like him in many ways. And that makes human life special. That's why it's okay to to go to the vet and put your dog down. It's not okay to go to the doctor and put your mother down. People are made the image of God. Animals aren't. So why do we see this push for euthanasia and push for abortion and so on? Because people no longer believe we're made the image of God. We're just, just animals. So why not do those sorts of things? So let us make man in our image. While God is one, there is a hint of some sort of plurality here, which we find out more about in the New Testament. So we see there's a, we're created for a relationship vertically with God. We're also created with the relationships horizontally with our brothers and sisters in God. And so we're made for relationship. God made people. We might infer that he's also a person. God is personal because he made us personal and we're made in the image of God. So God is a person. He's not just an it, uh, not just a force, like some religions teach. And so we see there are things about humans. We're made in the image of God. We are made male and female in the image of God. Now that's interesting. Not just man, males, were made in the image of God, but males and females were made in the image of God. So God said, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. So male and female together are made in God's image. So the events of chapter 2, we show that Adam was incomplete. We didn't read those verses, but how God brought the animals before Adam and they all had partners. And he's showing Adam, there's something missing, mate, you know. You need a wife. You need a partner. And so he created the woman. And uh, they were made male and female. The man and his woman were innocent. To verse 25 in chapter 2. They were innocent. And so Jesus talks about the Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the context of marriage. One man for one woman for life. 
So setting the scene for the future, for next week and onwards in this wonderful panorama of the Bible, we see the background of Genesis for chapter 3 next week. Uh, there are two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam is instructed to don't eat. Is it a magical tree, some sort of magical fruit that if you eat it, something bad happens? No, it's just a test. But we'll talk more about that next week. By the way, a hint. You can't accidentally eat something. Hmm? Uh, you say, but I can be riding along my bicycle or a fly can fly in. I can swallow it. Yeah. But, you know, if... Just say, for example, mother's, mum's made a chocolate cake for visitors coming this afternoon. It says to Johnny, Johnny, I don't want you to touch that cake because... It's for the visitors this afternoon. Mum comes in and finds a, a, a piece out of the cake. Johnny's got chocolate all over his face. And she says, Johnny, I told you not to touch that cake. He says, Mum, I didn't mean to do it. It's just an accident. Huh? Would you wear that? Now, you can't accidentally eat a piece of the cake. You can't accidentally eat the fruit. It's a deliberate act, isn't it? And so we see here in Genesis 3, a deliberate act of disobedience. That's what it was about. But more of that next week. And it says, you shall surely die. Missed that. You shall surely die. In the Hebrew it says, dying you will die. The process of death will begin. People say, why didn't Adam just die straight away? Why did it take another 900 years or so before he died? Because it doesn't say that he would die straight away. It says that dying you will die. The process of death would begin. And it took 900 years before he died. Well, that's a long time, isn't it? Well, there's another, another thing there. You can look up longevity on creation.com if you want to know about that. So Adam is the progenitor of all the human race. Eve is called the mother of all living. We see in Genesis 3, we, we are fallen. Uh, and how sin and death and suffering came into the world. Jesus is called the last Adam because he comes to undo the work of the first Adam over in the New Testament. It's all to do with the gospel. And these chapters presage a coming new creation because this one isn't perfect, is it? This isn't very good. And over in the New Testament we find a new heavens and new earth where everything's going to be uh, wonderful again. So uh, God as creator of all and the lawgiver, you shall not eat, provides the grounds for human accountability and responsibility. Think about it. Just finishing off. The creator... Gave law. What's sin? It's transgressing or breaking the law. There's going to be a judgment. And we need a saviour. And that's why Jesus came. So it's all foundational on this concept in Genesis of God as the creator and the lawgiver. If there's no creator, then the rest of it just evaporates. Folks, that's, how, that's why it's so difficult today to share the gospel with many people. They don't have actually a concept that God is real, the creator, the maker of me. God made me, he owns me, I'm accountable to God. And so this is fundamental. God the creator, the maker of everything, the lawgiver, is foundational to everything we believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for what the Bible tells us about the past which makes sense of now. 
it makes sense of why Jesus came and died on the cross. He took upon himself the curse of death for us, the lost race of Adam. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing on this series that there'll be a great understanding and an ability to share our faith with those who are perishing. And I pray for any who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, that even, even tonight they would understand their need of forgiveness. And even not tonight, bow their knee before you and accept that forgiveness in him. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.